6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The Acts of the Apostles. The other issue here is that of Israel's identity, and we're going to take that up in the next session, because the book of Romans spends three chapters hammering on that one for us. We'll get to the second missionary journey after the Council of Jerusalem, in which they go to Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, and so forth. And so Paul and Barnabas argue about taking Mark along. Mark wants to come along, and, and Paul wants no part of it, because he quit on them before. So Barnabas, they, they, Paul, this causes Paul and Barnabas to split up. God usually uses their tension to double their efforts because Barnabas takes Mark and they go their way and Paul takes Silas and they go their way. So they got now two teams out rather than just one team, see? So Barnabas takes Paul uh, with him to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas to Galatia. At Lystra, Paul encounters a young guy, Timothy, to join them. Becomes one of his protégés. And his couple of letters to Timothy are, pre are treasures for us to this day. But understand there's another Antioch they encounter up there in Galatia. Antioch of Pisidia, some people would call it. But uh, 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 don't confuse the two Antioch. The key one is the one in Syria, the first one we mentioned. And anyway, they, as they go through now, they publish the, de the decisions of the Jerusalem Council. That a Gentile can join the church by accepting Christ. He does not have to be circumcised or become a Jew to do so. Paul goes to Bithynia, the northern part of Turkey, almost to that area that's starting to get into Magog, if you will. And he's blocked by the Holy Spirit. He wants to go there very badly, but the Holy Spirit makes it quite clear that uh, that ain't where he wants you. And I might mention something here as you read the book of Acts. You encounter these resistances and so forth, but Luke is editorializing for you. The Holy Spirit won't let him go. Realize that's that's glibly said, but it's an inference they have to draw from having encountered certain kinds of resistance and so forth. But it's at this time that Paul has a night vision. In this night vision, in a dream, there's a Macedonian that shows up and urges him to come across. See, Macedonia is across the, the, the sea to Greece. He said, come on over and see, on the one hand, Paul can't go north. The Holy Spirit won't let him. But he is called to go west, to Greece, by the Macedonian dream. It's also at this point, by the way, that we discover Luke joins them. This is where he first shows up in the picture. And they sail then for Macedonia, or what we might consider northern Greece. There are many scholars that suspect that Luke was the guy in the dream. Okay, it was a, it was a prophecy of, of, of encountering Luke, but whatever. In any case, that takes them to Philippi. There, there's a, a, there's a girl that's a, has, that's a medium that has an evil spirit. She gets, uh, becomes a believer. When she becomes a believer, she loses her occultic gift. That's very interesting. Her owners are really teed off because that was a source of income. So they protest. There's a big crowd and there's a brouhaha that goes on. 
They get flogged and imprisoned, but they're freed by an earthquake. The jailer is really panicked. He's going to kill himself because he would inherit the, all the liabilities that are thus unfinished if these do escape. But he gets converted by Paul. Very, very interesting. The Philippian jailer is an interesting episode there. They travel to Thessalonica, a little further uh, westward. So Paul convinces both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, so the, Jews, some, the Jewish establishment in the region stirs up a riot against it. And Paul leaves secretly. He has to get out of town. So he slips out of Thessalonica and heads to Berea. And this is chapter 17. They get a little better reception there, but there's still a mob that gets stirred up by Jews from Thessalonica, and there's still problems. But one of the, there's a verse that's become a, our, our, one of our trademarks in this ministry. Because Luke tells us that the people in Berea were more, they had riots in both places, they had people accepted in both places, they had riots in both places. But he says, the ones in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with all openness of mind, but they searched the scriptures daily to prove where those things be so. We might say they came, they're, they're from Missouri. In other words, they were open but still skeptical. And that's healthy. That's what Paul, he, they're more noble than those things. Like, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, yet searched the scriptures today to prove where those things be so. The way I usually paraphrase that, that's where Luke tells you don't believe anything Chuck Missler tells you. But do your own diligence. Receive with all openness of mind, but search the scriptures daily to prove where those things be so. And we've used that as a trademark on our institute and other things, so for what it's worth. Okay, well, Paul leaves for Athens. He leaves Silas and Timothy behind to, uh, to follow up on the work, and he get, goes to Athens. And this is where we have the famous, in Acts 17, the, the uh, famous speech he makes on Mars Hill, the Rapacus, or Mars Hill, if you will. Let's talk a little bit about that. Arapacus was the court of the judges, if you will. It, it was crowned by the Parthenon. If you go there to visit, there's temples, theaters, marketplace, the Agora, and all of that. Uh, Arapacus was where some four centuries earlier, Socrates was tried and put to death. Uh, this is where Paul makes his famous speech. And it's interesting how Paul preaches. He's not preaching to Jews here. He's preaching to Greeks. So he's not speaking from the Old Testament. He's not quoting the scriptures. He's quoting Greek poets. First of all, he starts where their heart is. So you have to understand they were idolaters. Do you know how many gods they had there in Athens? 30,000 is estimated by some scholars. They had all kinds of things. And he notices, so he gives them a compliment. He says, you're obviously extremely devout. You're very God-fearing. Look at all the gods you've got. He, gives, he doesn't turn that against them. He says, you're obviously very God-fearing. But as he's going through this, he says, I found one idol committed to the unknown God. That's the guy I want to talk to you about, the one you don't know. <laughs> you see? And do you see the, the genius here that's going on? And he goes on, he says, we are his offspring. He's not quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from an astronomical poem by Aratus. That was a Greek countryman of Paul, from Tarsus, that is, a predecessor three centuries earlier. He also quotes from a religious hymn of Cleanthes of Troas, who was a contemporary of Aratus. So these are two ancient Greek poets that would be venerated by his audience. 
And he quotes from them to give me place to start. And so that's where the, whole, the famous speech at Mars Hill is. He also, in another place, by the way, quotes from yet a third Greek poet, Menander, in 1 Corinthians 15. But in any case, so uh, not a, it's a very famous speech. Not a lot is accomplished. They just agreed to talk more about it later. He departs from Athens to Corinth, which is very close, of course, but not very far away. Silas and Timothy bring news from Thessalonica. And as a result, Paul writes the Thessalonian letters. And he'll spend about two years here, despite the Jewish opposition. These Thessalonian letters are the two earliest, we think, the earliest epistles. They're so important that we're going to defer dealing with them until we get to hour 21, which is going to be our review of eschatology. It's interesting that both of these letters that he writes to the Thessalonians review what he taught them when he was there. He was there for a few weeks. He's now been gone two years. But when he writes letters to them, he simply reminds them of things he taught them while he was there for a few weeks. The first letter emphasizes the rapture. They're all concerned, and he explains again how the rapture works. So it's very, very important to understand the first Thessalonian letter. Later on, they again get concerned about eschatology. They're all worried about the fact that uh, the, the tri tribulation seems to have started, and they're still here. They apparently were taught that they would not see the great tribulation. Doesn't mean they wouldn't have persecution. There's a difference. Anyway, Paul clarifies that in the second letter. So the two letters, interestingly enough, deal with eschatology. What's really bizarre is these, ex these are considered very advanced topics in modern Bible studies. But what's fascinating to me is Paul taught them these issues in the first few weeks of their Christian experience. It's two years later, he writes them letters, and in the letters, he reminds them of that which he taught them when he was with them, which means he exposed them to these ideas right up front, which I think is very fascinating. But anyway, the Thessalonian letters. Uh, he writes from Corinth back to Thessalonians, and we'll, we'll study those in depth uh, in a subsequent session. And then uh, they sail from here um, to Ephesus. When he got to Ephesus, they wanted him to stay longer, but he resists that. They travel back to Antioch, Via, they go to Caesarea in Jerusalem first, but then they get back to their home church, which is Antioch, in effect. They stop by Jerusalem to report, but the real base of operations is Antioch. The third missionary journey, uh, they finally uh, decide to revisit the churches in Galatia and, and uh, Phrygia, you know, where they were on the first journey. After they revisit those churches, he makes Ephesus his base there for three years. Apollos shows up about this time. Disciples of Apollos receive the Holy Spirit. A church is founded, and there's more adventures. There are some problems in Corinthians that cause a lot of confusion. Paul, while in Ephesus, uh, plans to go to Macedonia. He sends Timothy and Erastus instead. Uh, they may go on to visit Corinth, but Paul is very worried about the immorality in the church there in Corinth. To be a Corinthian, as we'll start, we'll get into when we get to the Corinthian letter, but to be a Corinthian was, uh, uh, was equivalent to calling a person a fornicator. Uh, it was analogous to what we think of as Hollywood today or something. And Paul is very worried about the church there because about immorality. Three members of the church, Corinthian church bring a letter to Paul, and it's full of questions. 
And the problems apparently are far greater than Paul had even realized. And so he, he writes a letter in response to this visit. We call that letter 1 Corinthians. And he tackles these problems, okay? Well, Paul hurries to Corinth. And when he gets there, the encounter there is apparently very painful for everyone. Paul has to be very severe. He returns then back to Ephesus and writes a second letter that we don't apparently have. It, don't call it, don't think it's 2 Corinthians. We'll just call it the severe letter. And Titus takes this letter to Corinth, and Paul arranges to, to meet Titus up in Troas to get how the situation is going. Paul is at the center of a riot in Ephesus. His messages there in Ephesus have threatened the silver trade. There are a bunch of guilds that made their money off selling religious artifact, and they're celebrating the, the Ephesian goddess Diana. That trade is dropping off because of Paul's preaching, so there's a big riot. But anyway, he, he um, goes up to Thro uh, Troas, and he, Paul's really worried about this last letter, this painful letter. Was it too harsh? Titus is not where he was supposed to be. He somehow, they, they, they didn't appear as arranged. So he goes to Macedonia in search of Titus. I have no idea how they would arrange to meet, but somehow through the network stuff, they would meet to arrange. Meanwhile, he's on the way, he's encouraging churches, and he's collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. Finally, Paul and Titus meet, and Paul gets good news. The severe letter was taken as Paul had intended. It did not result in the misunderstandings that Paul was fearful of. So he writes what we call 2 Corinthians. It's really, you might call 3 Corinthians, if you recognize there's one that we've, we've lost. Some people feel segment, that, that the 2 Corinthians is actually a composite of several letters, and the, the, the missing letter may be part of it tucked in there. There's a the, the scholastic debate about that. But in any case, Paul writes 2 Corinthians, it, which is full of joy. Many people, it's their favorite epistle, because it's a joyful epistle. And Titus takes the letter to prepare the church for Paul's visit. And so that's the what letter we call 2 Corinthians, written in response to Paul's anxiety, you know, hearing the good news. He stays in Achaia for about three months, probably in Corinth, or at least in that region. And there he writes the letter to the Romans, the most comprehensive statement of Christian doctrine in the Bible. He plans to travel to Jerusalem by sea. However, a plot by his enemies forces him to return through Macedonia. So he changes plans to in response to that threatened persecution. So he arrives at Philippi and at Troy's. He preaches till midnight. There's one guy sitting in the window that falls asleep, and it's a third-story window, so he fell and, and, and apparently died, uh, but he's raised from the dead. I want you to notice that he was uh, preaching for about six hours. So those of you that are a little restless after 60 or 90 minutes, uh, okay. Anyway, Miletus. Now, Paul wants to talk to the elders at Ephesus. He seems to know that this is the end, the last time he'll see them, because he knows what's, there's some tough adventures coming. But he doesn't go to Ephesus. He goes to Miletus, which is on the opposite side of a peninsula. The elders cross the peninsula to come meet him. He's doing that to avoid the crowds. He wants to give his farewell to the elders there. So he bids farewell to the Ephesian elders. We're going to talk more about that when we get to the book of Revelation because we're going to explore 
the nuances there when Jesus Christ writes a letter to Ephesus and show how those fit together. So we'll deal with that then. But it's a very touching letter of affection and also warnings of the future at Miletus it's to the Ephesian elders. And, and, he, and then he goes from there back to uh, Tyre and back to, uh, to, to home base. After lighting a tire, they spend a day at uh, Ptolemaeus, and then up to uh, at Caesarea, they stay at Philip's house. Agabus the prophet dramatizes to Paul. He takes Paul's belt and ties himself up and shows this is what's going to happen to you, if you when you get down to Jerusalem. Paul is undeterred. He's going to go to Jerusalem despite these prophetic warnings. And uh, when he gets to Jerusalem, of course, he's welcomed by the church, fortunately. But he's recognized by some adversary Jews from Asia, and a mob tries to kill him. There's 40 guys that swear a blood oath to kill him. Uh, they don't do that. I don't know whatever happened to them, because the Roman troops rescue Paul from all of that. Uh, he does get permission to make a speech, but that just incites more violence. So Paul announces his Roman citizenship. That shakes up the Romans a bit, to realize he's a born, he's got Roman citizenship. That's un very unusual. Uh, he, he made a defense before the Jerusalem Council that turns violent. So the violence comes from the Jewish leadership. Understand that. The Roman troops are arresting him, but they're doing that to protect him. The, the Romans learn about this plot against his life, and so he's sent under armed guard to Caesarea, which is the headquarters. That's where Governor Felix is in residence. So Paul has a number of hearings before the Sanhedrin, which turned violent. He has a hearing before Governor Felix who defers, and he's still in prison for two years until Festus replaces Felix. Festus receives him. But by this time, Paul's getting the message. He spent several years in prison while they were waiting to figure out what to do. They don't know what to do with him. They, from an administrative point of view, they just want peace. But here's this guy, wherever he goes, there's all this uproar. So they're not they're quite sure what to do. So before Festus, Paul says, okay, I, he, he plays his trump card. I appeal to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He has that right. That also means, by the way, a written record of all the background has to precede him to Rome. And that's what Luke's all about, we think. He was funded by, he got someone to fund him, Theophilus, and that, that was all pulled together in support of Paul's hearing. But in any case, he's still in prison while this gets all resolved, and now he's before King Agrippa, and Agrippa's kind of impressed with him. But um, he can't do anything now because Paul's put it out of his hands. He's put it to, to, to Caesar. That's where, that's Christ, that's what... Uh, Christ's destiny is to get Paul to Rome for lots of reasons. Well, we have this very interesting chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 27, where they leave from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and then up Caesarea they go to Sidon. Paul and other prisoners pick up a ship of Sidon late in the season. This is in October, so it's, it's, it's getting uh, uh, too late to safely navigate these waters. Uh, there are very a lot of storms at this time. They pick up a granary, a huge ship, a grain ship, heading for Rome. It's a, it, that's the way they supplied the food to Rome. They get to a place, they, they're tacking, and they get to a place called Fairhaven, which is a shelter from bad weather. They hope it's just a little bit further, they'd like to go to Phoenice, because they believe that would be a better harbor to weather the winter in. But uh, they have a meeting. The centurion that's aboard, that's the military commander, the ship owner, ship captain, and Paul. Paul's quite a seasoned, uh, experienced guy at this point. Luke, by the way, is along with him, probably as a slave. It's the only way he would be able to accompany Paul as a prisoner. 
but he's a, Luke's along as his slave or as doctor. But in any case, uh, Paul tries to advise him to stay at Fairhaven, not go further. But they ignore him. What does he know? <laughs> they decide to try to make it to Phoenix, but a huge storm shifts. They get near the little island Clota, but they, uh, they suddenly find themselves in desperate straits. The storm blows them. They're fearful of getting to the desert area here. If they, if they, if they should land on the northern part of Africa, in that, in that area there, there's no water for many, many miles. It's, it's, a, it's a, a commitment to death, in effect. And so, but anyway, in, in this storm, they ultimately end up, after two weeks, of storm. They jettison all their cargo and gear. They stave, uh, stave off a mutiny. And along the way, Paul ends up winning the respect and the admiration of the, of the, of the uh, centurion. Uh, he's, he he uh, takes a liking to Paul. In fact, saves, saves, he saves their life and, and, he, and the centurion saves his. But they reach this sandbar in which the ship's going to break up on. And uh, they, uh, there's an incident where they drop four anchors. They have anchors to keep the, the ship from crashing, and then they finally cut the anchors, head in, and uh, swim to shore. No lives were lost. All this was predicted by an angel to Paul, and he mentions that if, if they follow his directions, which they do. And in effect, uh, it's quite a dramatic event. Now, the reason I'm touching on this, in Acts 27... There's so much uh, marine detail that it was recently possible by looking at that very carefully to track down the four anchors of Paul. They're exactly where the Bible says they would be. We just got back from a cruise a few months ago where they were formally delivered to the museum at Malta. We have briefing packs on that. Bob Cornuke was very instrumental in having this all pulled together, has written some very uh, graphic books on this. It's very worth your reading. I commend them to your background. But in any case, uh, while they're on Malta, they survive a venomous snake, and uh, they heal the uh, uh, chief of the island of a fever. And after three months, they sail to Syracuse, and after three days at Regium, and then on to Petoli, which is a major harbor. Paul's very encouraged by the local believers. He's kept under house arrest awaiting trial. For two years, he's under house arrest, in effect, uh, in Rome, and he enjoys considerable freedom to, to, to preach. The last we hear of Paul, of course, are through his, his pastoral letters. His first, his, uh, there are three books that in the Old Testament, I mean, excuse me, in the New Testament, that they give us uh, glimpses of what happened after the book of Acts. Uh, they're written to two of his young protégés. First Timothy, Paul is out of prison by this time, probably released from his house arrest at Rome at the end of Acts. He'd recently been in Ephesus and heading for Macedonia. He left Timothy in Ephesus to continue his work, and he's giving him counsel, and that letter is very worth reading. Titus was Paul's troubleshooter. When there was a trouble in church that Paul couldn't deal with, he dispatched Titus on a number of occasions. He apparently traveled uh, to Crete with uh, Titus, and uh, he knows the situation there very well, so he may have been on Crete for some time. He left Titus there to and uh, asked him to uh, meet him at Nicopolis, and where he intended to spend the winter and so forth. And uh, then his last letter of all, he wrote to Timothy. Now this situation, Paul is in prison, probably facing death, and it's Paul that is encouraging Timothy. You'd think it'd be the other way around. And he seems to expect execution pretty soon. 
Uh, but he had been traveling recently. He left his cloak and his, some books at Troas, apparently, and uh, he'd been at Miletus and Corinth, uh, leaving friends in all those places. And there's a hint that he may have also been at Ephesus. Anyway, this does seem to be Paul's last letter. There's also some hints here and there that he may have visited Spain. He had intentions to do so, and some scholars believe that he, uh, he may have done so after his he was arrested. So he was arrested, released, had some freedom, and then was arrested again and then killed. And so there's a tradition that he did visit Spain. So the book of Acts, let's just wrap it up. The birth of the church is the key issue, as distinct from Israel. Study those topics very carefully. The book of Acts is the gateway to the epistles. We've been to the historical books. Now we're going to get into the interpretation and significance of all these things. The history of the first 30 years of the church is outlined in the book of Acts. The next 2,000 are also in the Bible in the form of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which we'll deal with in a special session when we get there. Just as the period between the two testaments is not absent from your Bible, it's anticipated in Daniel chapter 11, verses 5 through 35. Likewise, the history of the church, after the first 30 years as covered by the book of Acts, is anticipated in the seven letters that Jesus profiles for us in um, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So our next session will be on the Epistle of the Romans. The definitive gospel according to Paul, the most comprehensive book in the New Testament, its impact, the impact of the book of Romans is unequaled in all of history. See, grace always erodes to forms of legalism. And when grace finally becomes obscured, you know what that leads to? The Dark Ages, from the 6th through the 16th century, Dark Period. What got us out of the Dark Period was the rediscovery, if you will, of God's grace through the book of Romans. If you really want us to history of the church, you should uh, either get our briefing pack called The Kingdom of Blood that Dave Hunt and I did together, or better yet, just go get Dave's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, which gives you both a historical and a prophetic glimpse of, of the, the, what I'll call the medieval church. That'll be next time. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.